welcome everyone to episode 29 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My very special guest this week, I'm so glad she made time for me, is Captain Dina Ali from the Rally, North Carolina Fire Department. Now, if you don't know about Dina, I'm telling you, you probably should. She's an absolute juggernaut in the world of firefighter health and wellness. Now, this week, we're just going to concentrate on behavioral health. But I'm hoping to have Dina back on later on to talk about some other wellness items that she's very knowledgeable about. But without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Captain Dina Ali. All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live. I got to tell you, I'm pretty excited today. I've got a special guest that I've been bugging for quite a while, and we finally got a time that works for both of us. After both of us were able to take naps today after after being on shift. <laughs> but uh, with me today is Captain Dina Ali from Raleigh, North Carolina. So thanks for uh, being on the show with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jim. All right. So I'll kind of just jump into it. You have, to me... An odd start, but actually it makes sense. You started uh, as a police officer. I did. I did. Um, that was my dream growing up. Uh, from I, I think it was because of the show Cops in the 80s. That show came on and it was like pretty strong. And so I started watching it uh, when I was a kid. And I was like, that is what I'm going to do. So I'm a stubborn kid and I stuck to it. Nice. Now, I'll st- I'm going to start off right away with a pop culture question. So I'm going to throw you off right away. Who sang the Cops theme song? Oh, really? You're throwing me like, oh, my God, I know it. And now I'm having a brain fart because you know that I was up all night. (laughs) And I even like that was like my first cassette that I ever owned, too. As soon as we (laughs) got the phone, I'm going to be like, duh. I'm going to I'm just going to let that sit. I'm not going to answer it because we still got a little bit of time. So it may come to you. It's going to it's going to come to me. Or you may just cheat. I mean, I could just start singing. I could just start singing it to you right now. I think my <laughs> audience would like. They would like to <laughs> no, listen. I'm not gonna... <laughs> no way. I've had, I've had a strain on my voice, and my karaoke career has been hindered uh, as of late. Ever since I had the flu, not the not the corona one, but the regular one. Anyway, all right. I digress. I'm already off topic. Not even two minutes into this. So here we go. Um, now, you were a police officer about, what, five years or so? Five years. <laughs> and and you finally decided, this isn't for me. I'd rather be a firefighter. Is that right? Yeah. And it's funny because I never, so like growing up, being a firefighter was just never anything that I considered or thought about because I never saw like women doing it. And I just never thought it was a job for me. And then even noticing the difference between law enforcement and firefighting, I was like, no way. I don't want to sit at one place all day and wait for a call. I want to go out there and do stuff. But uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, The show Rescue Me came out. And when it came Mm -hmm. out season two, they had the female. And I was like, wait a minute. That is so cool. And then, of course, that show made uh, at least the first two seasons of that show made it look awesome. So that's kind of what got me uh, like, hey, maybe this is a cool job. Nice. And so I imagine you being out there as an officer, you still got to see the fire department and see how they operate. And not just the show Rescue Me, but just seeing it live in person, that sounds like it intrigued you, right? Oh, yeah. And then on top of that, so they say for police officers, 
at about the five year mark, a lot of them start to get burned out. And I experienced that because by that five year mark, I did not enjoy being a police officer. You, you know, get into it thinking you're going to save people, make a difference and, you know, do all this positive and good. And then as you do the job of a police officer, uh, most of the time you get called after something has happened and you end up writing the report, hearing, you know, about the awful thing that happened. And there's just not a lot that you can do. Uh, if it was a bigger crime or whatnot, you pass it on uh, to an investigator. But for the most part, you as a police officer, you just do that report. And then on top of that, our interactions with the public are generally not positive interactions. You know, the fire department, they call because they need something and you can help them. Police department, you know, they either call because something awful happened and you're going to write the report or you're serving warrants and pulling over cars. And I mean, I can't imagine very many cars that get stopped have positive interactions with the police officer. So at that five-year mark, I was just kind of, I didn't enjoy the work. I didn't look forward to it. Uh, I looked forward to days off more than days on. And every time I would see the fire department doing their thing, I was like, that is so cool. They're always smiling. If it's a They don't stay forever. Uh, they do their thing and they leave. And if there's nothing to do, then they leave. And I thought it was pretty cool. So that's kind of what got me uh, paying attention to rescue me and uh, eventually applying. Nice. And you applied for for rally, I imagine. That was uh, kind of your hometown. It's where you wanted to go and, and work at, right? Yeah, that was it. Like, um, I'm born and raised in Raleigh. And so Raleigh's the capital of North Carolina. It's a not a huge city, but it's a bigger city. So that was that was actually the only place I applied. Nice. Awesome. I think, uh, yeah, my department was the only place I applied to. And the same, same story is where I grew up. It's where I wanted to be. So. Yeah, it's something about serving like your community and serving where you were raised and knowing the territory that, you know, is just exciting. And not only that, but I work literally two blocks away from where I grew up. So, I mean, I, I run into people and it's, it's good, but it could be a bad thing, too. But, um, you know, I ran into somebody yesterday on and that was in a car accident that I knew. So it's uh, it's kind of cool, but it definitely could not be cool, depending on the situation. Oh, yeah. Right now, uh, my, I'm assigned in in the territory where I grew up. So my parents' house is there and uh, we live in an old neighborhood that's established. So all of their neighbors are the same neighbors that I had growing up. So a lot of times it is great because uh, it's nice for them to see a familiar face. And it's nice for me to be able to help people I know. But then there is always the fear in the back of my head, you know, like my parents are getting older. So the fear of, you know, going to them for something bad, but it, I'm, it's still more, you know, it's, it's more of an honor to be able to serve um, not just your community, but the community that you're tied to. Absolutely. And I, I definitely have no problem driving around and knowing where we're going. You know, I've already, I've already been working on that street for, you know, 40 years. Those, those streets over there. So anyway, exactly. now you very quickly became an engineer, which is your is a lieutenant for you, right? Yeah, uh, it, I, it's kind of weird, but lieutenants are engineers; they're drivers. So, yeah, I was the way that our testing goes in Raleigh is they have the lieutenants tests every two years. So it just so happened that within a month of being eligible, the timing was right for me to take the test. So um, I took the test, and I. I, 
you know, the, the couple years before watching other people test, people study so hard and they seem like they study so hard and then they don't pass. So it's like very competitive process. So I just studied my tail off thinking it was going to be so difficult and that, you know, I wouldn't stand a chance. And I did really well. And the transfer list came out uh, in November and I was on it uh, effective January. So it was a whirlwind. Uh, it was pretty cool. It was bittersweet, though, because the company I was working with when I took the test was one of the best companies I ever worked with. Uh, so uh, looking back, there was a couple years where I looked back and kind of wish that I didn't take the test because uh, I missed what I had with that crew. Nice. And it's kind of ready or not, here you come. And I imagine when you get, it sounds like when you get promoted, you get sent to a different place, a whole different right. career. You get sent to a different um, shift and a different assignment. And usually, uh, not always, but usually if you're at a busier firehouse, you go to a slower one. Um, they, they really try to just get you moved. So I went from a decently busy firehouse. I was on a ladder. I was working with who is still um, my all-time favorite captain that I ever worked with, Captain Mikey Zell. I was working with like one of my favorite mentors, just living my best life. And I got promoted uh, from the ladder to an engine, and I got promoted to one of our slower firehouses. Uh, and then on top of that, it was the furthest firehouse from where I live. So it, it was a big transition that took place. And so you, you just got done studying for the prom promotional exam, and then you decide, hey, um, let's go back to school while I'm in that mode. I might as well go back to school. Yeah. It was kind of like that while I'm in the mode, but also, like I said, I went to a really slow firehouse and I think everybody knows that when you get promoted, you get so excited, you're ready to do whatever that is. You're ready to put those skills to use. And so I went somewhere extremely slow. And so I needed something to keep me engaged. I remember the first day when I was at 25 and I went from a two company firehouse to a single company I remember the first day it was 8 p.m. and everybody was in bed and I was like, oh my goodness, this sucks. Like, I'm not used to just sitting around by myself. Like, I'm used to us, you know, watching movies together, playing cards, having a good time. So, I um, and then also in that position, you you fill in as a company officer, so you start writing reports again. And it had been about six years since I was a police officer, and so it had been a while since I'd done any writing, and I, I realized that my skills just, you know, weren't what they were. I, I didn't remember where to put commas. I didn't remember, you know, where to, you know, use transitions and whatnot. So I didn't feel confident in my writing skills. So one of my good friends had actually gone back to graduate school and he kind of inspired me. I was like, well, you know, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> so uh, that's what kind of led me in that direction. Nice. Now, and part of that grad school was uh, you had a, a, an assignment in which you, you had to kind of dive in and, and put together some SOPs for your department. Is that right? That's right. Um, so the second semester, we were taking um, a, a leadership class, and the assignment was action research. Uh, so it was really simple. Find an area uh, where, you know, where you're involved, where the current practices are not best practices. Do some research, uh, look into it, and try to develop better practices. So for me, I don't do well when I just kind of make something up or, you know, goof off with an assignment. Like I want something that actually matters because uh, that way I'll, I'll be passionate about it. I'll care about it. I'll be, I'll, 
I'll be more willing to do the work. So luckily we had a really cool um, chief that was in charge of safety, uh, Chief Hobson. He's, he's just the man. I mean, he's, he's a smart firefighter. He's a fireman's firefighter, uh, just a well-loved individual. Uh, and he cares. So I just reached out to him directly and I let him know what I was working on and asked him, hey, can you give me something that would benefit like the safety office, something that would benefit our department? And so he thought on it. And truly, I was expecting him to come back, you know, with uh, like writ operations or laddering or, you know, just something tactical. And he came back and this was 2015. And he asked me to look into firefighter suicide. And I'll be honest, when he when he mentioned firefighter suicide, I was just kind of caught off guard because I had never heard uh, a discussion of that uh, in our firehouse environment at that time. You know, I I'd, I'd Raleigh, uh, because they're the capital and we do a lot of training and we're a great department, we don't do a lot outside of Raleigh. So I wasn't involved in anything happening, you know, like in terms of conferences or getting to know other firefighters. So all I knew what, was what was happening within our department. And suicide was just not something that was discussed. I didn't know of any firefighters who died by suicide. Uh, so it just wasn't anything that we thought about. So it was really odd to me that he asked me to research suicide. Nice. But you, you accepted that challenge and uh, kind of knowing you, I mean, even just in the few minutes we've talked, I know when you are interested in something, you dive in all the way. And what was some of the, the research that you found regarding suicide and firefighters? So, uh, and I know you've listened to a couple of my other podcasts, so you know a little bit about me um, and my story. So it, it was an ironic experience for me because at that time of that assignment, I had just gotten moved uh, to another station. So when I went to 25, I was part of our special operations team, and that was one of the special operations stations. But they determined that that, that firehouse was just too far out of the city, so they wanted to move it. So I had gotten moved uh, to Station 17, and everybody got moved uh, in, in there. And so it was uh, a group put together. The ladder was already there, and they were actually um, there before I got promoted. And, you know, a uh, bunch of great guys, kind of like the old school firefighter mentality. And, and we had that mentality that uh, you need to be great at your job before you promote. Uh, you need to be experienced. So unbeknownst to me, uh, when I got promoted and got promoted as quickly as I did, I, I guess I ruffled some feathers and um, annoyed some people. Uh, so I didn't know that I had I was developing haters in the peripherals because I, I just didn't know. But um, I moved to Station 17 right around the time of this assignment. And one of the guys on my crew, uh, he had been on the fire department since 97. A great guy. Everybody seemed to like him. Uh, he wasn't a very motivated guy. Like after lunch, uh, he was that guy that would like go to his cube and disappear and nobody would go bother him. We'd, we'd train, we'd clean stuff and everybody'd be like, oh yeah, um, you know, he's, he's in his cube. Uh, he, it's all good. He's been here long enough that he doesn't have to be a part of the team, I guess. But um, from day one, he, he didn't speak to me. And so I'd been used to people, you know, needing time to get to know me, especially, uh, you know, over the years I've learned in the fire service that sometimes it does take some of the guys, especially the guys that have been here a long time, a little bit of time to get used to women. Um, so I, I, I was used to people initially maybe having an issue, but I knew that if I just did my job, did it well and treated people with respect that, um, it wouldn't last because I'd never had a situation where it lasted 
you know, more than a couple of weeks after somebody got to know me. So I just went into it with the idea that I'm going to be myself. I'm going to do a good job and, you know, he'll come around and we'll be a team. And it just didn't happen. It seemingly just got worse. It went from him not talking to me to him talking about me to, um, you know, him getting the guys on the ladder to kind of team up against me. Uh, and it got really, it just got really tough on me because, I, I didn't realize, and it's funny, it, it actually just last year, I kind of understood more about why it led me to get depressed, but um, the situation made me depressed. I felt kind of, you know, I blame myself for it. I was like, man, there's something wrong with me. I'm obviously not likable. Uh, I'm obviously not deserving of this permission. So I, I just looked inward um, and was frustrated with myself. And every day I try to come in with a positive attitude. Uh, every day I try to come in and do a good job and it seemed like it just wasn't enough. And so every day when I got off work, you know, I kind of beat myself up. And I remember there were several days I'd get off work and I'd drive home and, you know, I'd break down and cry because of that just frustration of just trying so hard and, you know, feeling like a failure, um, feeling like I didn't belong, feeling like I wasn't a part of the family. Um, it really sucked. And, um, you know, the worst part was there was nobody to talk to about it because, you know, it's really embarrassing to tell somebody like, yeah, the guys at my firehouse don't like me. I'm not cool. So I, I kept it to myself. I tried to hide it. My family, you know, very proud of me. Uh, you know, so I couldn't tell any of them. Uh, so I had to make them all believe that everything was perfect. Um, and then as it built, it just, it, it I guess I, I, I kind of pushed myself into this like s silence and secrecy of what I was experiencing because I was so humiliated by it. And, you know, I knew that people got depressed. I knew that people died by suicide. And I looked at what I was dealing with as being so insignificant compared to the problems of the world. I was like, what right do I have to complain because this guy doesn't like me when people have real problems, people have PTSD, people have lost family members. Um, so I, that made me even just more humiliated by it that I just kind of, you know, it built up. So that's why when Chief Hobson asked me to look into suicide, it was super ironic because it, you know, didn't just happen right away, but over the course of a few months, um, I started to think about suicide. I think um, the more depressed I got, uh, the more I just forced myself into silence, um, the more I started trying to escape that, like, miser like, the miserable feeling that I felt, the excruciating pain that I felt. And so suicide started to come to mind. Initially, you know, it might have come to mind, like, once a week, and then once a day, and then several times a day. And, um, the more I thought about it, the more shame I built because I was like, oh, my God, I'm thinking about something so awful. If anybody finds out, like, uh, you know, it's going to make everything even worse. So, you know, it was just overwhelming and frustrating. So as I started to get into the research, um, everything started to make sense to me. And so, like, today I look and I'm just so grateful because uh, for people, understanding circumstances are it's just so powerful. So I get into the research and I learned that it's not, you know, the bad calls that we see that lead to, you know, our suicide. A lot of times suicide stems from disconnection um, and feeling like you're not worthy and um, not belonging. Uh, so as I was learning about that stuff and learning about alienation and how, you know, firefighters, you know, we, we, we feel this responsibility to the community we serve and we don't want to show any weakness or vulnerability. So when we are feeling that way, we hide it. And uh, the biggest thing that really like hit me was when I read the line that said, you know, how dangerous suppression, suppressing emotions are and how le that leads to, you know, further alienation. I was like, oh, my gosh, that is what I'm experiencing. 
So as I got into it, it connected with me. It helped me to understand what I was dealing with. And so then I, I just got on this, um, you know, I just got this passion for it. And I was like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to save all the firefighters. I'm going to, you know, solve the suicide problem. And uh, so I further dove into it. Between between all that research um, and kind of even having just that thrown on your lap and it just, you know, being kind of a godsend in a way. You also had a friend who um, kind of called you out on, kind of could see what was going on and 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 actually finally kind of got to you as well. Is, is that right? Oh, yeah. And it's um, it's really cool because I think back to what he did and the way he did it. Um, and even today, like as I teach peer support, I use them as an example. And, you know, today when I think about helping people, I, I use him and the, his process as an example. So uh, one of my close friends, we went through the academy together, Brian McGinnis. Um, he ended up marrying my cousin and we we became very close. So we we were in, in contact, you know, every other week we hung out a lot. Uh, when things went good, we called each other. When things went bad, we called each other. Well, during this time, and I didn't realize I was doing it, and actually it took a couple years to even understand it, but, you know, when I learned now that when people are depressed uh, and when people are thinking about suicide, sometimes they um, self-isolate and, you know, they push people away. And I I didn't realize I was doing it, but I was doing it. So I was pushing, you know, the people that I loved the most and the people that were closest to me away. I felt little self-worth. I, you know, I, I looked inward and I didn't like what I saw. And so I didn't want the people I love to be close to me. So me and Brian, like we got into a stupid fight, me and my cousin who we married, we got in a stupid fight and, um, I just kind of pushed them away and I didn't want anything to do with them. And Brian tried to call a couple times and every time he called, you know, uh, you know, the fight was over, we were good, but I didn't want to talk. And, so he would call about once a week and just, you know, hey, partner, I just want to check in. And sometimes I wouldn't call back. Sometimes, you know, I'd text back and be like, hey, I'm all good. Um, and then sometimes, uh, you know, I'd answer and I'd be really quick. Well, you know, he didn't give up. He did this uh, for several weeks. And finally, uh, one day things were just really bad. Um, I don't know what had happened the day before, um, but I just knew I was just in a really bad place. And I was I was. I was desperate. I was at that point where I was miserable. I I was desperate. I I needed help. I wanted help. Uh, I didn't know how to ask for help. And uh, luckily, Brian called and, uh, you know, just in a very non-judgmental way, he was like, hey, partner, um, just want to let you know I love you and uh, hope you're doing good. And that day, I just um, let it all go. It was like diarrhea of the mouth. I started crying. I told him everything that was going on, told him what was going on at work, told him how I was feeling. and, and he was just so awesome because his response was uh, so authentic um, and just so heartfelt, uh, like empathy. It was like the exact definition of empathy because I could tell in his response that he felt the same pain that I felt as I shared my story. And he said, man, that fucking sucks. I am so sorry that you have to go through that. You don't deserve it. And it, it was amazing how just such a simple response helped me to recognize that I didn't deserve it and that yes this fucking sucks um and that it is okay to like share it it is okay you know to speak about it it's not humiliating it's not silly um it it just really fucking sucks and I hope I didn't ruin your podcast by using that language but the language is important I would I would never ever say those words just to let you know (laughs) I am a saint but no it (laughs) 
Uh, you know, I spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago at the uh, Ohio Association Professional Firefighters Conference, and I said those words. But I, I mean, I made it like it helped make my point. And I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I, in my head, I was like, I'll really emphasize this with the fuck word. Yeah, oh. and I get it like that. You you shouldn't use language, um, but <coughs> in that in that situation, that language was necessary. At least you know our conversation, the two of us. Um, and, and the way he used it, because I knew that he felt the pain that I felt and he expressed it and it helped me. It, it helped me so much. Like there was this huge weight that had been on my shoulders that um, truly like it was lifted. It was like a turning point um, from that conversation forward. Uh, and it was just nice to know that I didn't have to hold it all within because um, holding a lot of pain, holding all that within. Oh, my goodness. It's heavy. Did you, after all this, did you go and talk to anybody about everything, any a professional about everything that had been going on with you? I did, um, but it was a couple of years. It was not right away. And that's, um, that's a big regret of mine now because from the very first appointment with my counselor, and by the time I made an appointment with my counselor, I was in a really good, uh, I was doing really well. And from the first appointment, I recognized how much quicker I could have been in that good place if I would have met her sooner. It took me a good maybe two and a half to three years to get to a place where, you know, I didn't have recurrent depression and to where I didn't think negatively of myself. It, it took that much time for me to do that on my own. Whereas uh, I realized or I learned by meeting with a professional, meeting with a counselor, that their job isn't to solve your problems or to fix you. Their job really is just to help you understand what your thoughts are and to help you understand how, you know, your thoughts and your feelings affect your behavior and how sometimes, you know, a certain thought doesn't have to make you feel a certain way. And there's a reason why you do. Uh, I guess sometimes the way I explain it is they just help you find blind spots in your thinking. Uh, and so, yeah, gosh, I, if I would have uh, reached out in 2015 or 2016 um my path to healing would have been so much quicker so so it sounds like and correct me if i'm wrong but between the assignment that chief hobson gave you and also brian kind of finally breaking through you you kind of came to the realization of what was going on and, and kind of snapped out of it and slowly started to to realize what you were doing and that you knew enough to know that you need to go a different way and it's just it took a few years just to get to the clinician aspect but you already started once you realized it you started changing for the better is that is that accurate oh yeah absolutely like first of all just being able to get off your chest was huge um second of all for me just having that external validation that it wasn't me um you know tim he was that guy at that firehouse there was something going on in his life and the way he reacted was by mistreating me and that wasn't a reflection of me. It's a reflection of him. But unfortunately for me, I needed I needed the external fa validation to understand that. Um, and then it took a couple years. It took meeting a counselor to understand how my early lifehood, um, the way I was raised, the way my parents raised me, actually played a part in the way I received uh, Tim's behavior towards me. You know, I, I you know I'm not embarrassed to say I, I had low self image. I had low self esteem, and it was just the way I was raised. My parents are immigrants. Um, they were extremely strict. Uh, they didn't understand American culture because 
their culture wasn't the same. So me being a tomboy, me being the person that I was, I was always like uh, an embarrassment, always getting in trouble. I, I was ADHD in school. So I was always acting out and talking in class and, um, you know, my parents were always getting on me. So I grew up being like, you know, um, getting in trouble a lot. Um, and rather than uh, using like love and, you know, that way, of dealing with it, it was more like blame. And, you know, you know, you are this, you are that. If you don't do this, you're never going to be anything. You're never going to be that. So I grew up hearing that a lot. Um, so I believe that about myself. And I didn't understand it until here in this last couple of years, just with the research, meeting with a counselor, um, the book, The Body Keeps the Score, it really helped to explain that so well. But I, I just, I, I learned and understood that my low self-image um, made me react to Tim in a way that maybe other people wouldn't have reacted to the way um, he, he, he was towards me. Sure. And I think, and I think that's powerful to understand because, you know, in the research that I've done on PTSD, um, early life adversity um, and not just like physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, emotional abuse is huge. Uh, and I remember there was one line in the book, um, the body keeps the score. And it said, you know, if, if you weren't loved enough as a child, if you didn't feel lovable, um, um, it can affect you. And that really resonated with me because it's it's a simple thing, but it's true. It doesn't impact people. And so I learned through that um, why, you know, early life adversity um, and the events that take place before somebody even enters the fire service can impact the react or can impact their response to uh, what happens uh, during during their career. Wow. OK, that's uh that's very insightful. I haven't, I actually, I haven't heard you talk about that book before. So that's something to kind of look into. If I can, I want to go back just a little bit and touch on, okay. So, you know, you're, you're given this assignment when you finally turn that assignment in, you know, what, what happens there? Yeah. So I finished it. Um, I didn't know how it was, uh, cause you know how it is when we do our own work, we don't know how it is, but, uh, I had emailed it to, uh, chief Hobson when I got done and, and he, he praised it. He loved it. He talked or he spoke very highly of it. Um, so I was pretty excited. And then it was uh, it's just ironic how everything in life works, because earlier that year, I'd met Chief Bobby Halton at FDIC. And uh, I remember through a conversation um, that suicide had come up. Uh, and I don't remember how how it had come up, but I remember hearing him talk about it. I knew that it was something that he cared about. So I sent him the assignment and um, he, he replied as well. And he's like, man, this is awesome. Like it's getting published. Like, that was really cool. That was the first thing I ever had published. So it was really neat. Nice. Now, um, back at your department, you were then asked if you can actually make this into a class for all, all your members. Is that right? That is. And it's so funny how that came together because at the Raleigh Fire Department, we've had we had several members create um, presentations, and what we would do is we put them online, kind of like Target Solutions. It was CenterLearn at the time. We put them online, and then you know everybody would be told to log in and uh, go through this. So I was happy to create the presentation. So I created a presentation. I left my name off of it, and uh, I sent it to Chief Hopson because I didn't want my name on it because you know like I, I shared my experience. So you know, I was having thoughts of suicide. So of course I didn't want my name on this assignment because I didn't want to maybe put the pieces together, but then also I just didn't want the extra attention from it. So I sent it to chief Hobson and, um, 
expecting him just to put it online. And he called me, you know, about a month or two later. And he was like, hey, are you ready? And I was like, August? No, what are you talking about? Well, we're going to deliver this presentation to the whole fire department in August. Um, and I need, I need you to be there with me. And I was like, uh, yeah, sorry, no, I can't do that. <laughs> but uh, he ended up talking me into it. And like I said earlier, Chief Hobson, uh, such a great person, uh, such a great firefighter, the way he treats people. So he's one of those, he's one of those chiefs, if he really asks you to do something, it's really hard to say no to him. So, I mean, you went from where you turned this in and you were anonymous to, <laughs> hey, we want you to teach this to everybody. And really right. just... I mean, just put yourself out there. Like, I mean, you're not, I, I can't imagine that you're comfortable doing this. And, and well, I, I, go ahead. Sorry. So, well, so I actually, um, I did it and I presented it as like an expert. So I did not share any of my story with it. I was, I, I was honest. I was like, Hey guys, I'm in school. Um, we work together on this assignment. Um, chief Hobson wants me to share it. So I was, it actually came up, it came well, like I was very nervous the first couple of classes because I thought people were just going to laugh at me and think it was stupid. Uh, but immediately people cared. Um, we learned over the course of doing or delivering the class that we had lost five of our retired members to suicide. Um, and this was something that none of us had ever spoken of. And then, uh, so the, maybe the second or third presentation, uh, there was a slide, uh, it was one of Paul Combs's drawings. It was the firefighter that was drowning and he had uh, the weight tied to his foot that said pride. And he had all these sharks swimming around him, depression, uh, PTSD, uh, marriage and all this stuff. And he's drowning because he wouldn't drop his pride. Well, when that slide was up, Chief Hobson um, said, hey, can I, let me interrupt. And he interrupted and uh, he shared his story and he shared why he asked me to do the research and it turns out that when the economy crashed in 08, his business was directly impacted. And in fact, he had built his house himself because um, he was a bricklayer. He did masonry uh, and he had this huge, beautiful house. And when the economy crashed, he lost his house. And um, so that that led to depression and that that led to some problems for him. And so that's why uh, this was a was something he wanted to research uh, because it impacted him personally. And in fact, when he shared his story, he shared that he had reached out to EAP um, when things weren't well, and he got a voicemail. And he was so frustrated because he recognized um, that if things were worse than they were, and he got a voicemail, um, that might have been the last time he tried to ask for help. And what what was worse for him being the safety officer, he said, man, if I can't get help myself, how can I take care of my firefighters? So that's why this was important for him. Uh, and he shared that. And I don't know if he knew it at the time, but one of the greatest things today that we know is when a leader models vulnerability and has the courage to share their story and talk about, you know, being in a bad place and getting through it. And luckily, by the time he shared his story, by the time we presented this, he had found a clinician, he'd done EMDR therapy, and he was doing really well. So it was beautiful uh, when he shared his story, because by the end of it, he said, and I feel so much better now. So at the end of each class, both of us, him more than me, had people that approached us and, you know, thanked us for doing this and then shared their stories. Um, so quickly um, through delivering the class, uh, we were we were impacting people. And I was so I, I hate to say it, but I was so surprised I didn't hear a negative thing about it. You know, I thought by doing this that, 
you know, the haters were going to come out of the woodwork and, you know, be pissy that here I am presenting something to the department and, you know, who does she think she is? But not a negative thing was ever said. It was all positive. And um, that was just, to me, incredible. At, at one point, did you feel comfortable where you actually opened up and talked about your own situation? It took a long time. So I did the research in 15 we delivered this to our department in 16. I spoke at FDIC in 17. Um, I presented on it uh, in April of 2017 at FDIC. And when I presented, again, I didn't share my story. I presented as if I, you know, I'm in grad school. I, I presented as an expert because I thought that's what people wanted. They wanted somebody who was educated and who'd done the research, not somebody to just talk about themselves. And I had, I, I had one evaluation and it said, um, you shared other people's stories, but where is your story? And I'll never forget that evaluation. And I thought a lot about it because I, I have a story and it kind of resonated with me. And then, so over the course of the next year, you know, staying involved in the research and learning. Um, and that's when I started to learn how important it is for people to model vulnerability, for people to tie um, or connect to it. And then of course, as you know, um, suicide blew up and became a hot topic in the fire service in 18. And people uh, started tying themselves to it and not everybody was doing it for the right reasons. And I noticed, or I, I was able to quickly tell who I could trust versus who I couldn't, who was in it for the right reason versus who wasn't based on their connection to it. So if somebody uh, didn't have a story or if somebody, you know, just wanted to present it to be an expert, I kind of looked through them and I was like, well, dang, um, it's time for me to, uh, you know, to walk to walk. So uh, when I first shared my story, I think it was, I think it was FDIC 18 and I, I didn't share it all. It took, it really took a good, um, you know, year, almost two years to, to put it all together. Um, but from the minute I started, you know, describing my story, which I'm telling you, I was humiliated by it because even presenting it, I was like, golly, this is so silly. I'm about to tell all these firefighters that I got depressed because Tim didn't like me and Tim treated me like crap. Like they are going to think that I am like the biggest. So I, I, it was humiliating, but immediately the responses I got um, were overwhelming. Um, my story impacted other people. Other people had experienced the same thing I experienced. And to this day, every presentation I give, when I share my story, I have one or two people that tell me that they felt like I was sharing their story. Um, so I think it was more the feedback kind of gave me the uh, courage and motivation to um, continue. I think that there's, there's just something to being able to share a personal story. Um, if you're able to make whatever subject you're talking about personal, there's just more buy-in. I mean, I can, just last week I, I was teaching, you know, my rookies about, about cancer and I brought in two of my, uh, you know, one active and one retired member that just had recent diagnosis and had been going through all their treatments. And I had them share their stories about everything, uh, that they've gone through. And the feedback I got was, you know, that was, that was pretty damn powerful that it really brought it home and made it personal because these are real life people with real life families dealing with this kind of stuff. So 
for you know you putting yourself out there. I, I commend you, but I, I think that, and I and I'm sure you know this. It there's a payoff there, and it and it's going to get more people to actually buy in. Oh, I mean, it's a payoff on both sides of it. Like the more I shared, and the more people told me how my story connected to them, the better I felt about myself. Like to know that I was helping people through just being me. That's extremely powerful. Um, and then, like you said, storytelling is, is it's healing. Like, uh, there's a lot of research on it. Brene Brown discusses it a lot, but, um, humans are hardwired for connection. And one of the best ways to achieve that connection is through storytelling. Like who knew that storytelling actually reduces or not reduces, actually produces, um, hormones and oxytocin, um, and, and creates that connection um, so storytelling, there, there's science behind it. It's necessary. Um, so just with that understanding, you know, I, I definitely make sure that when I present, I make sure to make it um, human as well. I'm not just presenting as, hello, I have a master's degree in this and let me tell you what I know. It's, hey, this is why it matters to me. And this is the work that I've done. And this is what I want to share. And the biggest piece of it is I am definitely not an expert. So um Please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on anything. Uh, nice. That's that's another thing that I've gotten annoyed with is uh, we don't know the answers. If if anybody knew the answers to suicide, if anybody knew uh, the solutions, suicide rates in the United States wouldn't be going up. They'd be going down. So nobody has the answers. We've got a lot of really smart people out there working, but they haven't gotten there yet. So um, I'm not going to stand in front of people and pretend like I've got the answers or pretend like I'm the expert. I know that there's so much more left to learn. Um, so I just hope that just sharing what impacted me and sharing what I've learned can maybe um, help other people. Exactly. Exactly. Now, and you mentioned early on, uh, you know, you had this goal, like when you went, started doing this research, like you want to help out, you want to change your department. Um, and you've obviously changed things beyond that. But in particular, you wanted to make sure that there was no other suicides. Or there was no suicides on the Raleigh Fire Department. And so is that when you decided, you know, after you did the project and everything that it's time to start a peer support team? We didn't, we don't have a peer support team. We need to have a peer support team. Yeah, basically. So every bit of research I did, I looked in. So I started by just looking in the first responders. I wanted to know what it was about first responders. And then I realized that there's not a lot on first responders. But more importantly, I realized that, um, our risk factors are not unique to us as first responders. That what impacts us impacts everybody. So I widened it and started looking at everybody. Um, and then of course I dove into a lot of military research because the military did a lot of work. And every bit of research I did, every professional I looked into, um, every article I read, um, every presentation I sat in, I, I realized that there was only one thing that everybody said together and only one thing that everybody agreed uh, worked for all people. And it was the power of connection and the power of social support. So the only thing that works for all people is connection, which comes from uh, social support, positive social support, meaningful connection. So not just being surrounded by people, but being surrounded by people with that meaningful ability to connect and be authentic. Because we all know that you can be you know, in a room of people and not connect. Um, you can be in a room of people and not be able to totally be yourself out of fear of judgment. But there's something really powerful about being surrounded by people 
and being able to be your true authentic self. So that, that was what was found to be a solution. So then it was, well, how do we create that? And so I, I saw what Illinois was doing through their firefighter peer support, saw what the IAFF was doing through their peer support. Um, and I realized that the answer lied in peer support, having first responders um, who are able to share their sh- struggles, who are able to say, hey, I'm not perfect. Um, I've struggled and I'm here for you if you need me. Um, so that's kind of where I, I took the turn towards peer support because I recognized just how much we needed it. Um, not just having the people, you know, to be there for each other, but also having the resources, creating networks, um, finding clinicians, um, giving people somebody to call rather than just, you know, try EAP and hope that some of the answers or hope that you get uh, somebody who might understand the first responder community. So I just I just learned and realized that peer support was the way. And it was kind of neat when, you know, I, I got into it because there wasn't a lot of peer support teams out there. So we were really, truly um, in new territory, um, you know, kind of not just creating maps, but actually bushwhacking and like finding the route. Uh, So, you know, it it became just a passion for me. It became exciting for me to try to find the solution and um, put the pieces together. And uh, they started falling together. And each time another piece came, um, I was inspired to kind of keep going further. And you were able to put all this together without management's support is that correct i don't want to say without their support because they did support and they did help um they helped us when we uh held our first class but um beyond the class there was no support to have a peer support team in place so what i got told was and i understand you know the fear of liability is huge and at that time you know the fear of liability was a big thing i remember um I had a chief tell me, because uh, at this time, Chief Hobson had actually moved out of the role he was in, and he was replaced. And uh, the next chief that jumped in, he he wanted to do peer support. He wanted to, you know, suicide prevention was important to him, but he wanted to do it right. And he basically said he needed all the pieces in place before he would have the team, meaning he wanted um, the, all the peers trained. He wanted all the clinicians, all the resources and without that, he didn't want to have the team. And I understood it. So we kind of waited a little while um, and just nothing was happening. I remember one day he told me, he said, what if we talk to somebody and then they die by suicide? Uh, we're going to have that liability. And I knew that there there isn't any liability. There's no liability if you talk to somebody and they kill themselves uh, unless you, you know, help them and tell them how to do it and, you know, tell them to do it. But if you if you're there for somebody when they need you and they still die by suicide, it's not your fault. And unfortunately, you know, you mentioned earlier, like I I pushed all this because I wanted to make sure there was never another suicide, but I've, I've gotten to the point today where I can't, I mean, I would love for there to never be another suicide, but I can't put that weight on my shoulders. I I recognize that, um, you know, there may be a suicide, but I know that the work we're doing is preventing suicides. Um, and just knowing that helps because if I put the pressure on my shoulders to prevent all suicides, um, when a suicide occurs, it's uh, devastating. And, and I know that because it happened, um, not not within our agency, but it happened. Uh, and, you know, my initial thoughts were, gosh, I failed, you know, all this work I'm doing and it's for no good. Um, and it, it was defeating. So that's where I kind of had to change my mindset um, from zero suicide to keep doing what you're doing, make a difference. Um, if you help one person and one person only, you've done something incredible. 
No, it's a, it's amazing. I I um I kind of share your thoughts on on a lot of that stuff. Um, we had our our mass shooting here in the city last year, and um, you know, I really stepped up the the peer support game and the resource game, and and I had this attitude of not on my watch. It's not going to happen. I'm going to do everything I can to prevent this from happening. And then it happened. And uh, I took that to heart. And I did take ownership. Right or wrong, I did. And uh, it's taken a lot of time to kind of let that go. So I, I kind of echo your thoughts on that. You're, yeah, you're not uh, the only one out tough. there. Yeah, no, and, and that's why I'm glad that we have the opportunity to have this conversation and say it. Because I, I want other people getting involved in this to know that because um, I'm not I mean, I'm I'm not going to lie when when it happened um, and not just once because we became a state team. So when it happened more than once, I really was like, man, I'm failing. And I, I was I was expecting people to come at us and say, you guys are failing. And um, it, it was a hard it was, it was a difficult feeling to have. And it made me want to I mean, who wants to be responsible for this? Uh, and it really made me want to give up. But um, that's where luckily thank goodness we have good relationships and actually um captain aaron beck with the north Carolina highway patrol he runs their team he was the one who told me you can't save them all but if you save just one you've done something incredible and um and he's right and if we give it our all um you know maybe we'll save more but we can't we can't carry that weight yeah exactly and that's that's kind of the same attitude that we've had here as well. So, you know, I know we're kind of on a, a downside of things now, but I want to get you out of here on try to do some positive stuff here. Some, some actual fun questions, if you will, by the way, I don't know if you figured it out yet or if you cheated, do you, you remember who did the bad boy song? Inner circle. I, it actually popped in my head. You cheated. You so cheated. I did not cheat. I did not <laughs> cheat. Inner circle. Cause I actually thought about it. Like, three minutes into our conversation but then we were like so into the conversation how can i interrupt uh, it'd be like yeah i was hoping you wouldn't come back to it and then people would forget oh no no i was on it can you name another song by inner circle no because none of their other songs were any good i had like, I, I bought the whole cassette and they were all crap <laughs> that is correct <laughs> i do remember that i hope that you open this conversation with the song bad boys by the way I, i'd have to pay for the rights i'm out on that Oh dang! Well, I'm glad I didn't um, go pull it up. And open it. <laughs> you already you already made this an explicit podcast now, so <laughs> I know I've changed like I've changed everything. <laughs> I, I feel like I should say a lot more cuss words uh, now that it's eh, it doesn't matter. Whatever. Now anyway, you, you can go bleep it. I got to figure out how to do that. Anyway, I've got these random 25 questions, and uh, nothing crazy, but just. I need you to pick a number between one and twenty-five, and we'll talk about it. And these are more—they're eh, just fun. There's, and they're more personal than it's not all business kind of thing. All right, give me thirteen. All right, what's your favorite movie? Oh man, so many. I just watched the Mr. Rogers movie, but um, Secondhand Lions was one of my favorite movies by far. I got to tell you, I've never actually seen that. Oh, it's incredible. You can feel but, free to deduct points on me. Yes. But growing up, remember, I loved Cops. Um, that movie, Colors, was my favorite movie. I don't know that either. What about the other guys? 
That's what do you mean, the my, other guys? That's my speed. Oh, that's a movie. I've never heard of the other guys. Will Ferrell, Mark Wahlberg. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not into that. Sorry. <laughs> Whatever, it's okay. All right, pick another number. Fair enough. Let's go with seven. All right, I, I like this question. Uh, what is something popular now, but everyone will look back at five years from now and think it's stupid and embarrassing? <laughs> the coronavirus? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, I'm yes. Sorry. And only, I, I understand why we're making a big deal of it, because it's something new and we're trying to eradicate it. But um, it, it's incredible to me because it's the symptoms are nowhere close to as bad as the flu. And it just is amazing how many people are wearing masks and like washing their hands like they've never done before when they weren't doing that for the flu. And the flu is so much worse and so much more prevalent. It's true. I, I was at, I did the Costco thing and they're wiping down the carts. They've got, they've got masks on, you know, like customers. And I'm just like, whatever. I already made it through uh, flu A. So I think I'm good. I hope I'm good. Um, I'm not old either. I'm not that old, so I'm in the safe zone. Yeah, I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in that category it. where I should be buying airplane tickets and going on vacation and stuff while I can, while it's cheap. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, we're going to go back and listen to this episode, and we're either going to be really embarrassed because really bad things have happened, or we're going to, like, laugh. Yeah, we told you so. Or, ah, shit, we shouldn't have said that. We're right. dicks. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I understand, like, trying to get rid of a new virus, especially since it kills older people but man I, like today they just canceled the acc tournament like nc state was supposed to play duke right now and they just canceled it two hours ago and then yesterday an nba basketball game was canceled right at tip-off so it's like are why we are you, the hell? why are you worried about your acc stuff when i'm number three team in the country right now come on university date go fly who who we never Let's heard of them stop whatever the next thing you know, you're going to tell me what the temperature is at outside your house. <laughs> what is it, 70, 80? Oh, it's nice, 75. I'm oh. sad that I had to come inside to finish the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be right back outside. All oh, right, one, yeah. more, one more question. One more one more number. What, what do you got? Uh, let's go with 25. What's your favorite professional team? <laughs> uh I'll have to say Golden State Warriors just because I really love Steph Curry, but I don't. I'm not really tied to professional teams. Okay, what college? North Carolina State. Oh, college definitely North Carolina State. Okay, fair enough. Oh, Best let me pro- take that back. Let me take that back. The Carolina Hurricanes. That is my favorite professional team. Okay. Do you know who the the best professional athlete to come out of North Carolina was? Michael Jordan. I mean, you could say that if you want. I'd say Ric Flair, but whatever. <laughs> Russell Wilson. He came from NC State. Uh, then he wait. Then he play for Wisconsin. He did for a little bit, but then he also played for NC State. Okay. He transferred. Yeah. Did he transfer from North Carolina State to Wisconsin, or was it the other way around? Does it even matter? I'm a Big Ten he, guy too, though. So he actually played baseball and um, and football, believe it or not. I believe he transferred to Wisconsin. Believe I could be wrong. So he went to the Big Ten. Hush. <laughs> I'm on that note. 
I'm going to walk out as the champion. So, <laughs> no, really, thanks for your time. I know um, sitting you down for an hour is uh, is really hard to do because you're pulled every which way. So I really appreciate, um, you know, spending some time with us today. Yeah, no, it, it was great. Thanks for thanks for having me. It was a good conversation. I appreciate you, uh, and, what you're doing. And and really, thanks for all that you're doing. Um, I, I've got there's uh, I made a joke with you. I think it was uh, we were off the air, but I talked about how next year for our health and wellness conference, we're just going to bring you in. We don't have to book anybody else. We just got to bring you in, and we'll spin the wheel and whatever it lands on, you'll talk about and you'll do a great job. So whatever but it is, whether nope. it's but nobody will come, so you got to be careful with that. Oh, and hey, I just Googled Russell Wilson, um, and he only played for Wisconsin for one year. So NC State developed him, just saying. Uh, it sounds like that, that year in Wisconsin is what made him. <laughs> Whatever. I can't even really defend Wisconsin. Come on. Go Bucks. Uh, with that, I want to head out of here. Um Thanks again. And I'm, I'm sure I'll be talking to you hopefully again, if you're up for it and we can talk, cause that's the thing. We've got so many different topics that you know a lot about that is important for our listeners. So, you know, I have a whole different episode set up for you whenever we can schedule it. Awesome. I look forward to it. Thank you. All right. You say that now we'll, we'll see how it is then. Yeah. Hopefully we can just make it happen. This was a lot of scheduling for this one. So well, go enjoy your 75 degrees. I'm going to leave and put on my jacket because <laughs> not anywhere near that. Uh, I'm sorry. All right. All right Thanks have a great again. Day. All right. All right. Bye. Bye.